It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 292 for May 13th, 2012. Well, look at that. Friday the 13th came on a Sunday this month. Thanks, Pogo. This week, a quick, easy, and inexpensive way to create a website... If you're tired of Firefox's memory munching, I have some thoughts about a new browser. And in short circuits, Google and Oracle split a double header. Angry Birds in Finland, finding lost stuff, and new tricks from Amazon. And for those who view the website, a special treat. I just created an eight-page website design in less than five minutes. And all but about two seconds of that time was occupied by trying to decide which of the 41 templates I wanted to use. Creating the pages required, literally, no more than double-clicking the website template option. There's more to creating a website than just selecting a template, of course. You'll need to add your own words and illustrations and other stuff. But if you're good with words, not so good with design, and completely flummoxed by HTML, JavaScript, and the like, then Zara Web Designer MX will let you look like a pro. Today I'll take you on a short tour and explain how easy it is to build a website with Zara Website Designer MX Premium. And not just any website, but one that's attractive and responsive. I started by examining the impressive list of included themes and I selected one called Portfolio. The theme offers 12 page types, lots of buttons, headers, footer elements, vertical and horizontal navigation bars, insertable panels, seven color schemes. Well, I could have built the site one page at a time, but the fastest way to create a site is just to select the Website option. That gives you an eight-page starter site. From there, I could move from page to page by selecting the page I wanted to edit in a panel at the right. The menu links are already set up and operational. Of course, I might want to add some links or remove some, but that's easy enough to do. I would like something other than the word logo type at the top of the page, though. So I double-clicked that word and typed in Bill's Pretty Good Pictures. Well, and now you're thinking, oh, you'll have to do that on the other seven pages. But no. This is what's called a repeating object, so changing it on one page changes it on all pages. At the same time, I changed the typeface, and just for fun, I rotated the graphic and the text. These changes were also replicated on all the other pages. Then it was time to change some of the pictures on the page. The pictures I selected were BMP images instead of JPEGs, and Zara Web Designer suggested that I should allow it to convert the images to JPEG for the web. The photos appeared with handles that allowed me to size, rotate, and move them within the frames. It's also possible to change the frame sizes, but I left those alone. Be sure to take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website to see this work in progress. And when you do that, you may wonder about the images at the top of the page. These are in the title area, so will the changes made on the page be replicated elsewhere? Well, in this case, the answer is no. That surprised me. The images could be linked to other pages, but by default, this particular template doesn't link them. Most users probably would prefer that the images be linked 
but I can also see some interesting possibilities that could come from using different images on each page of the site. For the most part, development continues this way, quickly, through the application. When you want to do something, you just do it. If I'd like the theme's background color to be darker and more neutral, making the change requires only selecting the theme color swatch and editing the pop-up color editor. The change is automatically previewed on the page, and yes, this does apply across the entire site, on any page and in any object where that exact color is used. Zara includes support for building flash animations as well as for page and layer transition effects, for example, changing photographs on click or mouse over. One thing that is different from most other website development programs is Zara's ability to rotate text. I already illustrated that in the banner's logo, but you can achieve the same effect with standard text, the body text part of the page. One thing to bear in mind, though, if you rotate text, is that it will be converted to a graphic. That's because HTML doesn't yet provide the ability to display rotated text. Zara Web Designer does attempt to help, though, by placing all of the text inside what are called alt tags so that search engines will see it. Zara has a long background in graphics applications, and because of that, you'll find several thousand items in the design gallery, clip arts, buttons, icons, and even some photographs. Should you decide you don't care for any of the more than three dozen templates provided, each with a variety of color themes, well, you can start with a blank page and build your own template. Zara offers Web Designer in two versions, standard and premium. The premium version includes a new feature called Presentations. Although just a few presentation themes exist, 13 to be exact, plus a selection that contains some presentation components, they are all attractive and they're easy to use. You won't be surprised to find that customizing these is just as easy as modifying the website templates. And when you're finished, instead of a standard website, what you have is a slideshow. Web Designer includes the ability to use more than just the few standard web-safe typefaces in websites you create, but the support is still incomplete in that it doesn't support Microsoft's WAF format or the lesser-used SVG format, so browser support is limited. You can create interactive charts and graphs that respond to mouse movements. The list, which is already quite impressive, goes on and on. You can download the program and use it for free with a limited number of templates for seven days. And if you register the free trial, then the trial period extends to 30 days. The premium version sells for $100, the standard version for $50. The bottom line for Zara Web Designer, five cats. As usual, Zara offers more features than expected for less cost than anticipated. You won't find more website development power for less money anywhere. Even the $50 standard version offers a lot, but the premium version at $100 really shines. For more information, you can visit the Zara Web Designer MX website. You will, of course, find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. An acquaintance recently asked me about Slim Browser. Although I'd never heard of it, the browser has been around for a while. It's based on the Trident layout engine. The person who told me about Slim Browser detests Microsoft Internet Explorer. 
That made the recommendation just a bit humorous. The Trident layout engine is what runs Microsoft's Internet Explorer, so Slim Browser is really just a front end for IE. It adds some new features that Internet Explorer doesn't have, but it's still IE under the hood, so if you are a registered card-carrying Microsoft hater, this won't be the browser for you. But it does have some surprising and sometimes amusing features. Let's start with one of the amusing features. Press Control and the tilde key, that's the little squiggle in the upper left corner, the browser will disappear. It vanishes and its icon in the taskbar dims, which would indicate the browser isn't even open. Now one telltale sign you've done this is that if you click the icon in the taskbar to open the browser, nothing happens. Control tilde brings it back. How about a useful feature? Sometimes you'd like to grab a screenshot of the entire browser page, everything, not just what's on the screen. Well, that is a built-in Slim Browser function. That's pretty neat. Slim Browser is a tabbed browser, of course. Most browsers are these days. When you have several tabs open, you can close an individual tab, close all tabs to the left or all tabs to the right of the current tab, close all tabs, close all but the current tab, close all and start a new session, or, oops, you didn't mean to do that? Well, Slim Browser teases you with an undo last close all menu item, but it really just opens the last tab you closed, not all of them. Clever idea. No prize for execution, though. What happens in most browsers when you type a new URL into the address bar where a site is already open is that the tab you're in switches to the new site. The Slim Browser does something different. A new tab opens, and that tab goes to the new site. The previous site stays open. Now, I happen to like that a lot. If you don't, and it is a little disconcerting the first time it happens, you can change the behavior. Plugins that work with Internet Explorer will work with Slim Browser, and if you don't care for the browser's appearance, you can download a new skin. There aren't a lot of those, but there are some. Website translations are common these days. Slim Browser has a built-in function that offers translations. The translations are provided by either Google or Bing, but Slim Browser has the hooks built in to do it sort of automatically. Translate an entire page or just some selected text. The translation engine Slim Browser uses can be either Bing's or Google's. You get to pick which one you want to use. It's the Tools menu, though, where you'll find most of the useful functions. Direct links to Facebook and other services such as Google+, Twitter, StumbleUpon, Blogger, WordPress, Gmail, Hotmail, and Yahoo Mail. You'll also find a pop-up blocker and an ad blocker here, settings for privacy and proxies, and possibly my favorite, alias definitions. The alias feature, and if you're a Linux maven, you already know where I'm going with this one, this makes it possible to type a short alias, tbww, for example, instead of the full URL, www.techbiter.com. Type the alias in the address bar, hit enter, and you're there. And finally, another fun feature. When you visit a website, the browser's title bar shows the information that the site returns inside the title tag. That information is repeated on the tab. If you want something else to appear, you can change the assigned site name. This can be a very useful feature. In a corporate environment where you might have several tabs open to different sections of the same site, you could define tabs for, oh, say, for example, payroll, employee directory, and project codes. Unfortunately, 
Slim Browser doesn't work very well with services such as lynda.com. In fact, I could go so far as to say it doesn't work at all. There's possibly, probably in fact, a way to make it work. But the point is that for a service as popular as lynda.com, a very popular teaching site, it should just work. The bottom line on Slim Browser, well, it's pretty solid, and it lives up to its name, so three cats. It is, of course, free. It's a product of Austin, Texas, and it does add some useful features to Internet Explorer. There's also a lot to like, but it's hobbled by a reliance on IE's limited set of plugins when compared to Google's Chrome, and particularly to Mozilla's resource-hogging Firefox. If you'd like more information, you can visit the Slim Browser website, You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, one for Google, one for Oracle. If the court fight between Google and Oracle over software copyrights was a baseball game, it'd be a doubleheader, or maybe a series. The doubleheader is over with Google taking one game and Oracle the other, but the series will continue. Oracle, the company that acquired Sun Microsystems and with it the Java programming language, says Google improperly used Java code in developing its Android operating system. This week's decision means that the Android operating system won't have to be rewritten, and that is a huge win for Google, and possibly bad news for Microsoft, whose upcoming Windows 8 operating system has support for tablets. Forcing a rewrite could have been a disaster for Google, because its operating system runs on something like 300 million smartphones around the world. But Google was found guilty of copyright violations. The jury was clearly unconvinced by either side and apparently quite confused about copyright law. Although Google violated Oracle's copyright, the jury said, it couldn't conclusively say whether the violation fell within fair use provisions of copyright law. Now, I'm not a lawyer. But it seems to me that if fair use applies, then there was no violation. And conversely, if there was a violation, fair use does not apply. One of Google's lawyers said the company would ask for a mistrial because, as he put it, fair use and violation are different sides of the same coin. The victory for Oracle will result in some cash payments from Google, but probably not enough to make much difference to either company. Their lawyers probably charged more for lunches during the trial. But Oracle can now attempt to force Google to license the software, something that Google doesn't want to do because of the control it would give Oracle. Okay, this is beginning to make my head hurt. Does this seem more than just a little convoluted to you? Oracle says that Google improperly used what are called Application Programming Interfaces, or APIs. But Google maintains that APIs cannot be copyrighted because they are simply tools that programmers use to build applications. Whether they might be patentable is another question, and one that will be heard in yet another trial. With the copyright phase of the litigation done, at least for now, the two sides move on to arguing about software patents. One of the most confusing parts of this case centers around the fact that Java 
is open source code. Even so, many users of Java licensed their use of the programming language from Sun Microsystems. Google didn't, and it doesn't want to, and it says that it can use Java freely without any restriction, just as people like me use the English language to write articles such as this. Suppose I could call this Angry Birds Are Finished, but I wouldn't do that. The Sarkanyemi theme park in Finland. See, Finland finished, get, oh, never mind. Yeah, this Finnish theme park now has an area for Angry Birds. Angry Bird Land builds on the Rovio game that's on just about everybody's smartphone and on lots of tablets, Angry Birds. The theme park features 12 rides, what's called an adventure area, games, and food courts. Meanwhile, back in the United States, Rovio reported revenues of just over $106 million in 2011. Not bad for a bunch of rotund birds that explode and blow up evil pigs. Seriously, if somebody had come to you with the idea for a game that involves cartoon birds propelled by slingshots at evil pigs, would you have bought the idea? Rovio's pre-tax earnings for the year were just under $68 million. At the end of the year, total Angry Birds downloads had reached 648 million, with about 200 million active monthly users. There are rumors that the company will try to go public soon, but there are also questions about Rovio's long-term potential. So far, it has exactly one product, Angry Birds. Games such as these eventually do go stale, and if there's nothing new in the hopper, the company doesn't have much of a future. But there's at least some talk of new games. In the 2011 earnings statement, Rovio discussed new games and initiatives for 2012. Now a third of the way through the year, there's only the theme park in Finland and reports of talks aimed at developing toys based on Angry Birds. And still nothing new on the horizon as far as games go. Some things are easier to find than others. Cell phones, for example. Forget where you left it, and you can just call it. The ring will tell you where it is. Keys, however, are a different matter. Leave them where you know you'll be able to remember where they are, and probably you won't. And then there's the unproductive and frustrating search. Some clever inventors feel our pain. Now you can add a key finder to your keychain. Attach it to your keys, it's about the size of a standard key fob, and you can activate it with an app on your Bluetooth-enabled cell phone. There are three problems, though. First, you need a Bluetooth-enabled cell phone. Mine isn't. You need not to have lost your phone at the same time you've lost your keys. And third, the device costs $60. If you don't have a Bluetooth device, there are other options, though. Maybe it'd be easier just to install a key hook and always remember to put your keys right there. I have one of those at the office, but not at home. 
I've never lost my keys at the office, but I'm constantly misplacing them at home. Maybe there's a lesson in there somewhere. What I'd really like is something that would help me find things like wallets and card cases. I've been searching for a card case for the past week, but most of the devices such as these are too bulky for card cases or wallets. The Bluetooth device is called the Cobra BT Tag. You'll see a picture of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website along with some of the other devices. Other devices, such as the click and dig units, depend on a calling device and an answering device. Place the answering device on things you want to find and carry the calling device around with you. Maybe those with Bluetooth phones could attach one of those Cobra BT tags to a click and dig calling device so that when they lose the calling device, they could use their phone to find it. Assuming they can find their phone, of course. Amazon brings books to mind. Amazon sells much more than books though, but that is where they started. The company sells its own hardware now, the Kindle Reader for example and the Fire Tablet, but lately they seem to have branched out into other hardware. Despite the fact that my primary desktop computer has something like eight USB ports and a four-port hub that effectively adds three more, the addition of yet another USB device made the addition of even more ports a reasonable idea. So I started looking for hubs, and I found an Amazon Basics USB 2.0 4-port hub for $9.15 with free shipping. You'll find that prices vary a lot for USB hubs. I found a powered 4-port hub for $140. Others, including a Darth Vader hub for around $40, dozens of models in the $15 to $20 range, and some for two or three dollars. In part, this price variance is because some hubs are powered and some are not. The computer provides five volts via USB to attached devices. Many USB devices don't need extra power and can be attached to a non-powered hub, but devices such as printers and some scanners often do need power, hence the availability of those USB hubs with attached power adapters. Well, I didn't need a powered hub, just a basic four-port hub. I didn't need Darth Vader, and I was a little suspicious of those hubs priced at two bucks. But a basic hub sold by Amazon, with Amazon's name on it, well, that seemed reasonable. It arrived a day or two later, I plugged it in and attached a device. And that's it. Everything worked. Sometimes, simple stories are the best. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.